Okay, last week we saw Jesus begin a teaching on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. Uh, The disciples had asked about the glory of the temple, and so Jesus told them that the temple would eventually be destroyed, and it was in 70 AD when the Romans came in and invaded it, and General Titus gave the orders to go into the Temple Mount and destroy the temple. But then Peter and James and John and Andrew asked Jesus when the end of the age, basically, would occur. And they sat riveted as Jesus began to give his answer. And with his first words, what we studied last week, Jesus told them about the birth pains that the world would go through um, before or in preparation for his return. And what we saw there was that before his reign and before the new heavens and earth, the world would endure increasing trouble. There'd be wars, there'd be rumors of wars, there'd be famines, there'd be sickness, disease, pestilences. Uh, These things would increase in frequency and intensity leading up to the second coming of Christ. Uh, But Jesus told us also in the passage we looked at last week that believers are not supposed to be alarmed about that kind of thing, but instead to live lives that are in line with the gospel and preach the gospel itself with their words and works until he comes. And even though persecution is going to increase and be prevalent or predominant throughout the world, God's people must endure. We gotta endure, and as we endure, a day of salvation is coming. All right, so that's what we looked at last week. And then Jesus says this thing that we already read there in verse 14. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, so here we've got a verse that talks about this thing, this event called the abomination of desolation. And Mark gives us this cool little parenthetical comment in the middle of it after saying it. He says, let the reader understand. So what are we supposed to understand? What is the abomination of desolation? All right, Uh, to understand this phrase, we have to consider its origins because actually Jesus isn't the first person to have used this phrase. It comes and is lifted from the book of Daniel, written about 600 years before Jesus' time. Um, Matthew, when he records the Olivet Discourse, or this teaching, Uh, He says that Jesus said that Daniel talked of the abomination of desolation. So Jesus knew that Daniel had written or spoken these words. Three times in Daniel's book, he wrote about this event, the abomination of desolation. And each time he did, it's clear that he was thinking about an event for him that was in the future. And Each time he did, he was speaking not just of the future, but of something that would happen inside the temple. The temple of Israel there in Jerusalem would somehow be desecrated. The worship would stop. It would be an abominable act that would desecrate the temple and make it desolate so that nobody would go there for worship any longer. Thus the phrase, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination which makes desolate. So it's fascinating that Jesus brings up this event to his followers because in their day, they thought the abomination of desolation had already occurred. 
the reason that they felt this way is because nearly 200 years before the time of Christ, there was a Syrian ruler who was named Antiochus Epiphanes. Write that down, just try it if you can. Now Antiochus Epiphanes, about 200 years before the time of Jesus, 400 years after the time of Daniel, invaded Jerusalem, set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and sacrificed a pig on that altar, which of course is a forbidden animal for the people of Israel. So he defiled the temple and made that temple desolate. It was an abomination to the Jews. So to the disciples, the abomination of desolation that Daniel had spoken of had already happened in their minds. But here comes Jesus. He comes along and he tells them, no, the event is still future. It seems the terrible actions of that Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, were only a foreshadowing of the ultimate and eventual fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies. Okay, now after Jesus spoke these things, there was someone else who did something kind of like Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, Jesus died, rose from the grave, the gospel spread, and in 70 AD, like I've been talking about, uh, Titus came into Jerusalem and uh, defiled, in a sense, by invading the temple itself. He desecrated and destroyed the temple. He made it desolate. So it's natural to wonder if what Jesus was referring to was the events of 70 AD when he said, hey, guys, wait for the abomination of desolation. It's coming. But though Titus's ransacking of the temple might have been a foreshadowing or a partial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies, it seems that Jesus was actually speaking about something even further out into the future than just what Titus did in 70 AD. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, was not the full fulfillment, I think it's possible, if not probable, that Titus was not the full fulfillment either. And one reason that we might think this way is because the Bible teaches about a coming figure called the man of lawlessness, whose actions will immediately precede the day of the Lord or the end of the age. And for this, I want to draw your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 8. I'm going to read a larger section of scripture, so if you guys would like to turn there and see it in your own Bibles, you can, but we'll put it on the screens also. This is what Paul said. Okay, remember, Jesus is saying, watch out for this event called the abomination of desolation. When that occurs, flee, run away from Jerusalem. I don't think Antiochus Epiphanes was the full fulfillment. I don't think Titus was the full fulfillment. I think we're still waiting for that figure to come in and defile the temple, partly because of words like Paul spoke in 2 Thessalonians 1 through 4. Notice what he said. He said, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So even all the way back then in the first century, there were people spreading rumors saying, the day is here, Jesus has returned, the, the, we're in the end times right now. Letters were going around saying that kind of thing. Well, Paul said, verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's an amazing thing that Paul says. There's a figure coming, a man of lawlessness, who'll go into the temple and actually declare himself to be God. Now let's jump down to verse 8 to just see this man's end. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this figure, his end is going to be traumatic and it's going to happen when Jesus visibly returns. All right, so this leads me to believe that this man of lawlessness or man of sin is yet future. Many of you might know of this figure by the popular title that Christians often give to him, the title Antichrist. It's actually only spoken in John's epistles. He speaks of the spirit of Antichrist and a coming figure called Antichrist. If you've read the book of Revelation and you've seen the portions about the beast, that's this figure. He's figured as a beast in the book of Revelation, but he's the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And according to the original prophecies of Daniel, he's a coming world dictator who will establish a seven-year peace treaty with the world, particularly with the Middle East. This likely means that he will be the one to pave the way for a rebuilt temple on the old temple mount. I've been talking about the old temple mount, but I've told you there's no temple there. And uh, if someone is able to make a way for that temple to be rebuilt, it would be an astounding feat because, I don't know if you know this, but there's a fairly famous Islamic mosque on the temple mount today. So it would take a lot of peace treaties to be able to create a Jewish temple in that same space. But halfway through this peace treaty, his true nature, according to Paul and Rome, or, or a Revelation, will be revealed, and he will demand the worship that only belongs to God. Now, sometimes people wonder, you know, how could people be so deceived about this guy? I mean, Revelation calls him a beast. Daniel's prophecies call him a horn who does terrible things, like an animal horn coming out and doing terrible things. But I think that those images reveal God's perspective about this person. People, though, will love him. To the world, he'll, he'll not be repulsive, but energizing and widely received. He'll, he'll bring peace. He'll essentially be a world dictator who leads humanity into what appears to be a golden age until he shows his true colors and the judgment of God is released upon him. In this way, he's not the opposite of Christ, where Jesus is nice and this guy is evil or mean, but he's antichrist in the sense that he's instead of Christ. He presents a way of salvation in a sense that is different from what Jesus offers. So many people will see him as a hero. I think basically what this person will offer the world are the benefits of Christ's kingdom, things like peace and justice and mercy for all, but without Jesus. And over church history, many people have tried to figure out who this guy is. The popular guesses over the last few thousand years 
have been the Pope, whoever it is at that time, Nero, uh, Hitler, Mikhail Gorbachev was a huge hit back in the 80s, Napoleon, and did you know this? Nearly every American president has been accused of, this is the guy, he's the Antichrist. I think I heard once that only Gerald Ford was never accused of being the Antichrist, so I'm not exactly sure why. But uh, up to this point, everybody's been wrong in their speculations. But I do believe that one day, a world ruler will come and complete Daniel and Jesus's abomination of desolation prophecy. Now, before we move on, there's a couple things I wanna do, and one of them is just, I wanna tell you that this is, by the way, one of the most difficult verses in Mark and the New Testament to interpret. Mark said there in the little parentheses, let the reader understand. Uh, And I've tried my best to help you understand what he's saying. Uh, But I've also been candid to tell you this week and last week that there are some people who don't see anything in the future in these statements. Uh, They think that all of these things occurred in 70 AD when the Romans came into Jerusalem. So there's a lot of debate, but I think the best view still sees a future fulfillment of Jesus's words, partly because of what he said next. All right, but before we look at what he said next, I just want to I don't know if I even want to do this, but I think it might be wise, just given the text that we have today, to answer a question. What about the mark of the beast spoken of in Revelation chapter 13? I don't talk about the mark of the beast all the time. The Bible doesn't give it that kind of prominence. But I think in the days we're living in, some might even ask the question, is there a chance that the COVID vaccination is the mark or is preparing us for the mark of the beast? And like I said, I hesitate to answer the question, not because I'm afraid to do so, but because, frankly, it's not how I'd like to spend our time together. I think there's other things that the Bible would have us to focus on. I'm not gonna tell you whether to get the vaccine or not. That's between you and the Lord. But strongly, I know that the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Here's why. First, Revelation portrays the world adopting the mark of the beast after the man of sin reveals his true identity in the temple. In other words, no abomination of desolation, no mark of the beast. Put another way, for the vaccine to be the mark of the beast, we'd have to be in the second half of the great tribulation with a Jewish temple in existence, worshiping one world ruler. Second, true believers will be incapable of receiving the mark of the beast. It will be impossible for them to receive it. I'm not even sure that the church will even be around when the mark of the beast is distributed. But even people who come to Christ during the great tribulation, and many will, will be able to withstand the temptation to take the mark, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. Third, Revelation depicts the people who receive the mark as worshipers of the beast. Intentionally, not accidentally, they devote themselves to him and give him the worship that only God deserves. Fourth, Revelation does not describe it as a secret mark, a trick world leaders play on an unsuspecting population, but as something the world willingly embraces on their forehead or on their right hand. Fifth, if the mark of the beast is literal, it will be a tattoo-like mark 
on the forehead or on the right hand, not a shot. And sixth, I don't believe the mark must be literal because the rest of Revelation says that believers have the seal and name of God on their foreheads. We generally take this to mean that we belong to God, not that he tattoos his name onto us. So I think that the mark could easily be a knowing allegiance and worship of the supreme leader of the world after he defiles the temple in the middle of the great tribulation, three and a half years before Christ returns. So sorry for that little excursus. (laughs) Hope that wasn't a bummer to you. But like I said last week, you know, God has given us common grace. So the vaccine, you know, it might be God's mercy. And while I don't worry that this vaccine might be the mark of the beast, I'm not worried about that. I do worry that life will go back to normal one of these days and God's kindness will not lead to man's repentance. I fear we will be lulled to sleep by a false sense of security. I fear a vaccine could cause us to trust ourselves rather than God. If there's anything I'm really worried about with the the vaccine, it's that. And we certainly must keep our ultimate faith and trust pointed towards God. He will be the one to get us through. So I don't know if that was necessary to share with you, but pastorally I felt compelled to do so today. But let's move on in the passage and see what Jesus said next. He said in verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. We'll stop right there. Okay, all these exhortations, by the way, they have a little bit of a Jewish bent to them. Uh, For instance, if you look in verse 15, he talked about fleeing from the housetop. You know, many of you listening to this might be saying to yourself, (laughs) how many people are hanging out on the roof of their homes? But in that region, uh, in Israel, at that time, that was the thing. Houses had roofs that you could hang out on top of. So this is a a regional kind of idea. You could dine or relax or sleep or store goods on pray or pray on the flat roof of your home in that region. And Jesus had already said in verse 14, which we already read together, that it was the citizens of Judea that needed to flee when the abomination of desolation occurs. And so some would say that this is evidence that Jesus' words were focused only on the first generation of the church that started in Jerusalem. But I take it as a clue that God will turn his attention to the people of Israel in the last days. And quite possibly that the church will be removed before these events occur. Now Jesus called this tribulation the hardest tribulation ever, the most difficult time ever. Look at verse 19 again. He says, in those days there will be such tribulation and as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. It's so severe, Jesus said, that we should praise God for his intervention, that he will cut short these days. No one would have survived without divine intervention. 
And God will not allow those days to go on forever. Jesus said in verse 20 that for the sake of the elect, and when he says that, I think in this context, he's talking about people who come to Christ during the great tribulation. Because of their sake, God will shorten the days. But it's the greatest tribulation ever. Daniel predicted that this time would come. In Daniel 12, verse 1, he said, And there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found uh, shall be found written in the book. Now this time of tribulation that Daniel spoke of and that Jesus speaks of here, uh, you might have heard it called different things. The Great Tribulation is one title that's given to it. Another title given to this time of tribulation is called the 70th week or the 70th seven of Daniel because Daniel in his prophecy predicted a final seven-year period of pain. Others have referred to this as the time of Jacob's trouble because Jeremiah gave a little prophecy about a coming time of Jacob's pain or Jacob's trouble. And my view is that the time of trouble Jesus described here is found in apocalyptic language in Revelation 6 through 19. How many of you have ever read the book of Revelation and have been a little bit confused? (laughs) It seems to me that Revelation 6 through 19 describes the seven years of great tribulation in apocalyptic language. And I want to give you a brief overview of those events in Revelation 6 through 19. So if you're like, man, I just don't know about the book of Revelation, I'm going to try to explain it to you in the next three minutes. First, God's judgment is pictured as bound in a scroll in heaven. And Jesus, in Revelation 5, takes that scroll and begins to loosen the seals that are closing it shut. And there are seven seals. The first seal that Jesus opens introduces a white horse rider, and this is likely the Antichrist that I've been speaking of today. The second seal reveals a red horse rider, and with him comes worldwide violence. The third seal brings a black horse rider, who with him comes worldwide financial collapse. The fourth seal reveals a pale horse where a quarter of the world's population dies from things like famine and sickness and even animals, the animal kingdom turning on mankind. The fifth seal reveals many will be martyred for their belief in Jesus during this season. And the sixth seal reveals cataclysmic disasters. And the rest of these first, the result of these first six seals, here it is, is that people hide themselves from God and generally do not repent of their sin or turn to him. There's going to be a lot of evangelism during this time, it appears, from Revelation chapter 7. A lot of new tribulation believers, people coming to Christ during this time. But most people, many people, the vast majority, will reject God. Now when Jesus opens the seventh seal in Revelation, it reveals that there are seven trumpets inside that seventh seal. And there will be silence in heaven when Jesus opens that seventh seal because of the disaster that's contained within it. With the first trumpet in that seventh seal comes massive ecological disaster. 
as the planet's vegetation is struck. With the second trumpet, the seas are struck, indicating massive oceanic disaster. A massive water shortage comes with the third trumpet. The fourth trumpet brings cosmic disaster as the sun and moon and stars are struck. The fifth trumpet leads to an increase in demonic activity for a period of five months. And the sixth trumpet leads to massive death. As much as a third of the earth's population will die. And the result of those trumpets is a total lack of repentance from the earth's inhabitants. So Jesus opens up or allows the seventh trumpet to blast. And that leads to seven bowls that are filled with God's wrath. These come in the back half of the tribulation, potentially right before Jesus returns. The first trumpet unleashes pains and sores on everyone who follows the Antichrist. The second trumpet leads to the complete destruction of ocean life. The third trumpet destroys the fresh water supply. The fourth leads to the sun becoming more potent and having a scorching effect on humanity. During the fifth trumpet, the Antichrist and his kingdom will be overcome by complete and painful darkness of some kind, similar to the plagues that were brought upon Egypt. And the sixth trumpet will dry up the Euphrates River. And how will people respond to that sixth trumpet? Well, the drying up of that river will beckon the armies of the east to gather together at Armageddon to to literally attempt to fight against God. And the seventh trumpet will lead to the destruction of the world's religious and commercial systems that are designed contrary to God and his will. And the result of these bulls will be that humanity longs longs for everything that God has judged. They're going to weep what they lost rather than ask God for mercy. And with all of that, Christ will then return and conquer. And we will look at his return and what happens after it next Sunday. Okay, all this to say that that this will be a time of tribulation like has never been experienced before and never will be experienced again, just like Jesus said in our Mark 13 passage. It will be a time of great pain, okay? And, you know, by the way, I'm sorry if today's the day that one of your friends finally came to church with you. (laughs) We're just going through the Bible. This is where we're at today. But why is all this necessary? What good could come from such tribulation? Well, first, these warnings remind us that God is long-suffering, but a day of reckoning always comes. He's patient, he's kind, he waits, but a day of judgment comes because of who he is. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, he said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So these warnings should help us know that our time on earth today is meant for, at least in part, reaching people while God extends mercy and patience to the earth. 
But I think another reason that these days are spoken of to us is that these warnings should produce holy living in God's people today. Peter went on to say in that same passage, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with heat. But how are we to live in light of these truths where we're to pursue a holy and godly life? When we think about tomorrow's coming trouble, we should gain a better understanding of what is of true importance today. And third, I believe that the time of tribulation is actually going to lead to the saving of many souls, particularly those of the Jewish race. To me, this is evidenced in places like Romans, or Revelation chapter 7 and Romans 9 through 11. I think there's going to be a great multitude no one can num- number, Revelation 7 verse 9, that comes to Jesus during this time. And fourth, the time of tribulation will reveal the heart of humanity. Remember the plagues back in the book of Exodus? I hope you do, because I've been working so hard to teach them to you on Tuesday nights. But in those plagues... The perfect or ideal man at that time, Pharaoh, the top dog, the greatest man alive, his heart was hard to God, and it was revealed through those plagues. He opposed God, and as the plagues came down upon him, his heart was revealed. He hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, and who he was was made manifest through the plagues. Same thing will happen, I think, in the time of great tribulation. Who humanity is will be revealed. And fifth, God has given ample witness in the cosmos, in his word, and through his church about who he is and his plan for mankind. We have been preaching that he is the judge of all the earth and that every person must give an account to themselves before God for thousands of years now. And so eventually, a time of judgment must come because God is holy and he's offered the salvation that is found in his son. But for those who reject the son, a holy God must judge. Now let's close by looking at our final verses today. It says in verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you, all things beforehand. Now, now that's where we're going to stop our study today. And let's just see a, little, a couple of things about this last closing paragraph. First of all, even though God can work miraculously today, notice how he warns about those coming to deceive with signs and wonders. So that tells us that we should be on guard about signs and wonders because some people will use them to try to lead God's people astray. It won't be possible, Jesus said, in the end times, but days will come when it will be tempting to depart from Christ for something flashy. Remember, though, Jesus did miracles, but he was always reluctant to gain followers with miracles, and so that should be a clue to you. When you see a ministry that is using miracles to gain followers, that's not what Jesus did. He did miracles so he could preach the message, but he really didn't want people to follow him who were just attracted to his miracles. But in the end times, there will be those who, like Pharaoh's magicians, remember their names, Janus and Jambres, uh, who 
worked miracles like Moses did, that will happen in the end times. These deceivers will use demonic power to convince people that Christ has come. But as we're going to see next week, when Jesus comes, it is a very public and non-secret event. So Jesus tells us in verse 23 to be on guard. Now we're going to think more about this next week because Jesus has a couple parables and stories about what it means to watch and be on guard. And so we're going to reflect on that next week. How should we act in light of these teachings and doctrines that we're looking at? But for today, let's just end by considering how the exhortation to be on guard it points us back to Jesus' words in, in, uh, from last week. Remember, he told us we're not yet living in the time of tribulation. We're in the birth pains time. Uh, and even though wars and rumors of wars and famines and disease and disaster come and persecution is on the rise, Jesus told us that we should, verse 7 of Mark 13, not be alarmed. Can't freak out because of that. Instead, he told us to be on guard and preach the gospel. Don't be distracted, stay focused, live and preach the gospel because one day Jesus will return. All right, so let me close with just some applications for you. I'm sorry I don't have them on the screen for you guys, so you'll just have to listen to these. Number one, don't spend your time seeking the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ. The scripture never tells us to spend our time and our energy worrying about the beast's kingdom, but instead to spend our time and energy on Christ's kingdom. So set your mind and your affection and attention there. Number two, be more concerned about the spirit of Antichrist than the actual Antichrist. Okay? What, what I mean by that is that uh, I'm just parroting what John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. There, he told his church, he called them beloved children, and he said, beloved children, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, but even now, many Antichrists have come into the world. And he goes on to teach and make clear that what he's talking about are people who were part of the church, but they didn't really believe in Jesus, and eventually they had to depart from the church. They acted like they were Christian, but they really didn't believe Christian doctrines, and so they left. That's actually the greater danger right now, John said. So worry less about the Antichrist and think a little bit more about the spirit of Antichrist. And I've been trying to give some teachings about liberal Christianity and things like that that are probably in that spirit of Antichrist camp. Number three, hold on to the doctrines of common grace and the image of God in humanity when thinking about the end times. I talked about this last week. You know, uh, Though hard-hearted, not everything that mankind does is evil. And so we have to retain the doctrines, hold in one hand you know, these end times apocalyptic visions, but on the other hand, recognize that uh, mankind is made in the image of God and he has given us common grace uh, with which to enjoy and pursue life today. Number four, since God, since God will judge the earth and all that is in it, live a life of holiness. Don't partake of the religious and commercial systems that are contrary to God. Jesus is going to judge those. Number five, do not be deceived by signs and wonders. They don't prove anything. And number six, do not be alarmed by the current birth pains that our world is experiencing.